Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Pan's Labyrinth. A long time ago, in the underground realm, Cuentan que hace mucho, mucho tiempo, where there are no lies or pain, en el reino subterráneo, donde no existe la mentira ni el dolor, vivía una princesa que soñaba con el mundo de los humanos. There lived a princess who dreamt of the human world. Soñaba con el cielo azul, la brisa suave y el brillante sol. She dreamt of blue skies, soft breeze and sunshine. Un día, burlando toda vigilancia, la princesa escapó. One day, eluding her keepers, the princess escaped. Una vez en el exterior, la luz del sol la cegó y borró de su memoria cualquier indicio del pasado. La princesa olvidó quién era, de dónde venía. Su cuerpo sufrió frío, enfermedad y dolor, y al correr de los años, murió. Sin embargo, su padre, el rey, sabía que el alma de la princesa regresaría, quizá en otro cuerpo, en otro tiempo y en otro lugar, y él la esperaría hasta su último aliento, hasta que el mundo dejara de girar. Once outside, the bright sun blinded her and erased her memory. She forgot who she was and where she came from. Her body suffered cold, sickness and pain and eventually she died. However, her father, the king, always knew that the princess's soul would return. Perhaps in another body, in another place, at another time. And he would wait for her until he drew his last breath until the world stopped turning. And welcome back to our Guillermo del Toro season. Hello to my wife and co-host Sharon. Hello. And hello again to Lauren Grieve. Hello there. Now, Pan's Labyrinth may be Del Toro's greatest film on a technical scale, on an emotional scale, and in terms of what people think of when they picture his work. It wasn't his most successful film by any means. Sort of, it's it's 83 million, which is better than Kronos at $621,000, but nowhere near as good as Pacific Rim at $411 million. But nonetheless, this is going to be a firm favourite among his fans. It was nominated for Best Foreign Language Picture 2006, losing out to all but forgotten The Lives of Others. And reading up on GDT's response to that, I was curious to find that he was happy 
As far as he was concerned, a lack of official recognition would keep him hungry, increase the belly fire and the joy for the light of creation. But if he'd won, that would have confirmed his excellence and been something of a full stop. To that end, he doesn't like the idea of winning awards, and the fact that The Shape of Water was nominated 13 times at this year's ceremony felt wrong to me. He won Best Director, the film won Best Picture, Best Score and Production Design, and it's impossible to deny the worthiness and immense amount of hard work that went into that wonderful film, so I couldn't be crestfallen. Those wins may, of course, also draw more attention to that back catalogue I just listed. Maybe some more people will see The Devil's Backbone, for God's sake. And so, let us enter El Labyrintho del Fauno, the Spanish-language title literally meaning The Labyrinth of the Faun. The pan part stems from the English translation, and both are wonderful collections of words to think about and to say aloud. But the fawn in question is not the pagan god Pan. He is something else, as we will find. The Synopsis Again, for those who need to know the basics of the story before we go in, it is 1944 and the Spanish Civil War is coming to an end. Ophelia is a young girl going with her heavily pregnant mother to live with her new father, Captain Vidal, in an ancient mill in the woods, which stands beside an even more ancient labyrinth. Vidal is hunting rebels and killing them, trying to root out who among his staff is helping the guerrillas in the woods, becoming justifiably suspicious of a housekeeper named Mercedes and a doctor named Ferrero. Ophelia, meanwhile, plays in the forest and comes across a twisted fawn who tells her she is a legendary princess who journeyed up here to the world above and can come back home to her real father if she completes three tasks. She succeeds at the first one and fails the second, and the trauma of these experiences is mirrored in the real world. Her mother gives birth and dies. Vidal kills the doctor and is mutilated and hunted by Mercedes with a contingent of rebels. Ophelia attempts to rescue her baby brother from this brutal man who pursues them both into the labyrinth. The fawn tells Ophelia that the final task is to sacrifice the child, but she declines and is mortally wounded by Vidal, who is then shot by the rebels who rescue the baby. And at the end, either Ophelia bleeds out and dies tragically while Mercedes weeps over her, or is reborn triumphantly in the underground kingdom, having passed the tests and kept her pure spirit intact. Or both. This is a film of two parts, two major worlds enmeshed, and one world is, is obviously a wartime drama. The other world, would you say it was a fairy tale, a fantasy, a parable, or all three? And why? Well, I certainly like to think of it as a fairy tale, specifically. We touched on it slightly in The Devil's Backbone, mm. and I believe you you called it um, something else, uh, a parable or a fable. Uh, but for me, and maybe this is just who I am being very keyed into uh, like gendered concepts, but 
ever since there was that comment in one of the commentaries where Del Toro said that the Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth are very similar stories, but one is a, a very like male-coded experience, while the other one's a very female-coded experience, and fairy tales have been, it, for you know, better or worse, uh, coded female. Uh, that's why there's usually princesses and, and things of that nature. So for me, fairy tale is the most appropriate. Although you could go with folk tale, perhaps. Mm. I think we delineated that fairy tale is the uh, more respectable version of a folk tale retold in modern times. Yeah, I, th- I think like the fairy tale is anything that the Brothers Grimm wrote down. Mm. Or just anything with a clever boy or girl who outwits uh, disgusting humans or more often than not, disgusting monsters. Mm, yeah. Who behave badly. Jack and the Beanstalk or yeah. Vasilis of the Wise. Yes. The, uh, I think I called it a parable last week, but didn't, didn't we figure out that it was with fairy, very heavy fairy tale elements or using those elements to tell the, ge- the general story? Mm. Yeah, and not to mention the fact that there are so many callbacks to other fairy tales in Pan's Labyrinth that, to, to me, that just, it solidifies it. Mm. I think the parable elements, if you, if you take them as parables of the Spanish Civil War... A parable, folks, is uh, the, the what's going on in the story mirrors the external conflict. Yeah, and, and that's kind of emphasised by the fact that the Civil War actually infringes on and is a, a fundamental part of what's going on in the text... But in both cases, it is on the fringe. You're not seeing the actual Spanish Civil War. You're seeing um, kind of where the tendrils of it touch. Mm. The outskirts, same as with Devil's Backbone. Yeah. yeah, that's what I mean for both of them. Yeah. It's it's sort of it's periphery, but a kind of macrocosm, mm. microcosm, macrocosm, whichever one both. means a smaller version <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> of the um, the actual Civil War and the the conflicts that go on there. Yeah, and and it is sort of important to note, I think, that in relation to the Spanish Civil War, the Devil's Backbone is right at the beginning Mm. when things are just kicking off, while Pan's Labyrinth is uh, far – I can't say at the end because it's – what, 44 is when it takes place, which would be near the end of World War II, but Spain would still suffer under uh, fascism for quite a while after that. But it's still uh, the difference between – just ramping up the fascism or the proto-fascism, as it were, and the full-blown fascistic uh, overtones that you see later on. Pan's Labyrinth is sort of the, the mopping up afterwards, and uh, Del Toro said that it was kind of the, the, the prototype of um, what World War II would become, mm. and that the, the, the terrible things done there were kind of then expanded outwards across Europe. Mm. I think fundamentally as well, what makes it so notable that they take place with reference to the Spanish Civil War and not to World War Two, which would also be an appropriate um, parable and, and metaphor to use, is that in both of these films, in the wider world context, the fascists are winning. They've not necessarily completely routed all of their opposition, but they are getting there. And yet, in these stories, the really important bit of it is the core of hope that lingers, despite the fact that in the outside world, the bad guys are winning. And with World War Two, the bad guys were defeated. So telling a parable of, hang on, keep that core of hope, you will win in the end 
it, it's not that it wouldn't be it wouldn't mean as much exactly but it's that you've got a real world context of the bad guys did lose whereas with the Spanish war it's well no they didn't and then things got worse so in those situations that core of hope is even more important mm. Uh, the first thing that really hits you before anything else is the music by Javier Navarrete. There's the uh, Mercedes lullaby, which uh, repeats throughout the film in, in, in various forms and is impossible to get out of your head. And as uh, Mikey Newman said, it just makes you feel melancholy as soon as you hear it and is intrinsically linked with, uh, with, with the powerful emotional journey that this film brings you on. You also uh, almost immediately see the the, the, the color coding. Now the the real world in this has kind of a metallicish blue green, and uh, it's it looks cold. And there's some sort of there's rust and decay in there and shadows. And uh, in a lot of the time when they go to the fantasy world, it's red and lush and uterine and womb like, uh, with a lot more circles as opposed to straight lines in the real world. But the first time you see the fairy kingdom, it's dark and shrouded and blue, and it, it, it's, it seems to have been affected by the real world. And so you've got this you know, female figure running out while the, um, the fable is being told. The narrator at yeah. the beginning? That's yeah. uh, Pablo Adan. Uh, he also did the voice of the phone, actually. Oh, of course. Right. That makes perfect sense. Because Doug Jones, uh, who uh, I think this might be Doug Jones' like s most stellar film in terms of showing what he can do. I mean, I, honestly, Hellboy 2, he, he does some fantastic acting, and we'll get to that in a bit. But um, this one, in terms of physical performance... And being extraordinary and uncanny and memorable in not one but two haunting physical roles. Uh, Doug Jones actually learned all of the lines in Spanish so that he could mouth exactly to Pablo Adan's uh, words. I, I, I've been a huge fan, huge fan of Doug Jones since I think... Was this the first thing I think I saw him in? Um... Did you see this before? No, no, of course, Hellboy, Hellboy first, yeah. He was um, Abe Sapien in Hellboy, uh, with um, voiced by David Hyde Pierce at the time. So again, he was just the body, not the voice. Same as when he played uh, Silver Surfer. He was just the body, not the voice. It was uh, Lawrence Fishburne. Did you guys know, by the way, that Lawrence Fishburne was called in to basically play Galactus? And then they were like, oh, he's going to be a cloud. Do you want to be the Silver Surfer? Oh, that's ridiculous. <laughs> that movie's so bad, though. Yeah. Uh, however, another thing about the Fantastic Four Uno is that Guillermo del Toro was going to direct it. No! Yes. He was going to do one of two things. He was going to either do Fantastic Four, the, the first one with Chris Evans, or he was going to do Pan's Labyrinth. Oh, I'm so glad he did Pan's Labyrinth. And he had he was in New York, and he, I, think he was in, I think it was New York. He lost a diary that was a notebook for Pan's Labyrinth, and he was freaking out. And he was like, this is a sign. I'm going to have to take this fucking Fantastic Four movie. And 
the I think the cab driver brought it back to his hotel or something along those lines, and he was like, "Well, now this is a sign. I've got to." The do- universe wants you to make Pan's Labyrinth, man. Ditch that script. <laughs> And he didn't do Fantastic Four. And the eventual film was very mediocre. But Chris Evans was nice. Chris Evans was nice, but it is hard to see how Guillermo del Toro could really have improved that Mm. much. (laughs) I think, honestly, with the way del Toro works, he would have taken the original script and reworked it. And burned it. it And and written a different one. (laughs) Reworked it, which is another way of saying burned it and started from scratch. But that's what he, he... He took Pacific Rim and turned it into a del Toro film. This is true. And then they took Pacific Rim 2 and turned it into a not-much-of-anything film. So. Fantastic Four film. Yeah, there you go. Soy un fauno. Vuestro más humilde subdito No. Vos sois la princesa Moana, hija del rey de Bezmorra, el reino subterráneo. Mi padre era sastre. No sois hija de hombre. Since we're talking about it, if you look at the filmography for Del Toro, it's like passion project, uh, something to make the studios happy. Passion project, something to make the studios happy. And then a couple are kind of a blend of both. Yeah. Uh, I just I just got to see Hellboy 2 for the first time yesterday, actually, since I was, you know, sick, laid up, might as well watch something. Good time to watch uh, it. Yeah, and I'd seen the first one before, and I remember not... Walking, I remember walking away from the first one and being like, okay, like it's got great visual design, but it's kind of like ho hum, whatever. But then the second one feels so much more like a Del Toro film mm. than a superhero piece. And it, those ones where he can kind of blend and appease the studio, but still get some of his own messaging and his own interests in are really noteworthy, but his passion projects are always the best, most interesting pieces that he makes, basically at this point, The Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth. And someday, I can only hope he's going to finally get to make his version of At the Mountains of Madness, which he's been trying to make for like 20 years. Which is why everybody is so desperate for him to make this one, because it's like when his heart and soul are in it, he creates magic. It's kind of like um, uh, Terry Gilliam, God bless his little Me Too movement smashing socks. He's been trying to make Don Quixote his entire career and now he'll finally get that opportunity. Although empathy with women will of course still elude him. And Del Toro obviously has been been sort of playing and toying with Lovecraftian imagery for decades now. Mm. And Del Toro has always wanted to make At the Mountains of Madness. I've been kind of like hoping that he won't get to make it until he's 90 and he'll be super happy with it and he'll die of joy. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I can go with that. Honestly, it's dragged on for so long now. It almost makes me think that the stories about Hollywood being built on some hellbound conspiracy are true and they're actually just, they keep throwing him other movies to try and distract him because they know that if he ever makes this movie, Cthulhu will actually burst through and eat them all. Hmm. Yeah, the Shagas will just ra- rage forth from the South Pole, and that'll Absolutely. be the end of it. Absolutely, yeah.
you, you talked about the, the color in Pan's Labyrinth, and it definitely has that cold green, blue, and and the, the gold and the, the warmer colors to separate the to the fantasy and the reality. But it's so much different than The Devil's Backbone, because The Devil's Backbone had that same separation, but it stayed separate pretty much the whole time. Mm. While in Anne's Labyrinth, they blend together. The first time that she goes into the labyrinth and finds the fawn, like you said, it has that steel blue uh, color palette where the greens are very green, but it's more like the... And and this is, of course, the last portal to the fairy realm that the fawn has decided that, like, this is the last one that exists, so he's going to watch over it as long as he can. And it's... uh, the, The idea for that is definitely that reality has almost completely shut away the magic and the the fairy realm before she finds it and then you see it bleed in more and more but for me the juxtaposition which you mentioned briefly but i want to highlight again for this film instead of color uh, at least the the true juxtaposition is in shape because everything in reality is very hard sharp angles and everything in the uh, fantasy is very rounded circles and it bleeds through in really wonderful ways even to the point where like the the main character her name is Ophelia you know like ah. it begins with a circle while the main bad guy is Vidal the most acute angled letter you can possibly have nicely spotted so and and it bleeds through all over the place the the lantern that mercedes uses to uh basically um communicate with the rebels is it has rounded openings to make little golden circles that she waves her hand over to to communicate with them and it's everywhere in the film you'll see that wherever there's like a little bit of magic bleeding through it's far more likely that it's the um the, the circular or the rounded imagery rather than the color. The color is very important and the color is definitely there, but uh, it because it's talking about the bleeding of realities, the color ends up being a little bit more muddied, I find, as far as like a, a juxtaposition is concerned. I think it's uh, the, the, the deeper reds and the golds happen when she goes really deep. Like when she go- she goes into the uh, realm of the pale man, that's when it starts getting uh, redder. And um, when she's in the the kingdom at the end, that's when it's this lustrous gold. Mm. Oh, and and so that makes me think the one magic related thing that is sharp angles are the chalk doorways. Oh, no, there's and- two. There's oh, two. What was the other one? What's another thing that's very pointed and V-like that oh. is in fact repellent? The dagger. The dagger at the end, yeah. The hilt of the dagger is a very gold color with more rounded uh, rounded aspects to it. Actually, where the heck it's is that the picture? Yes. in between the realms. Mm. Bloody hell. I was just going to say yeah. that there is a lot of intersection in this as well. And I think you're absolutely right, Lauren, about the fact that in Devil's Backbone, the two worlds are very separate. Um, and where there is crossover, it's... It always seems to be um, a person who deliberately sets one foot over the boundary, but you don't really see the boundary. Um, whereas with Pan's Labyrinth, it's this is all about doorways. It's all about boundaries. It's all about the the places where the two worlds collide. And the in terms of the colour, you've got the as you say the the steely blue um, military element of the human world. And the 
and the straight lines and sharp edges that go with that, then the golds and the reds and the uh, the circular curved elements of the magic world. You, yes, you see that in the Pale Man's um, domain in terms of the shape as well as the colours. Uh, it's all archways and the roof is curved. But the intersection places, and this is where I think the green really comes in, where you've got magical world of the fantastical creatures and human world of quote-unquote reality nature is often the place where those two things interact you've got the forest which is all green you've got the the place where Ophelia goes down angular sharp steps to the circular markings at the bottom that lead into the labyrinth and that is all very um it it starts out with that steely blue but it becomes much more green the further down she goes and it's it's all covered in moss even the the fawn himself there's a brilliant shot where she walks down the stairs and she walks past the statue and the camera pans around so that the statue, you, you kind of see the fawn laying on a rock face down as she's walking down the stairs, but he's not moving. So you don't necessarily, I, I certainly never saw that he was there before. I thought he just appeared out of nowhere. But you see him there and then she moves around the statue and it pans around and then he comes in from the right. That shot is mirrored at the end when they go into the forest and the camera pans around Mercedes and Ophelia, the umbrella gets in the way and then it pans back and reveals Vidal. And it's the same motion of the camera to move around a thing to reveal the thing that wasn't there before. Um, but yeah, the green um, is your doorway colour. Ophelia wears green all the time. She is coated in green. She has a green coat. She has a green dressing gown. Um, she has a, a, a an array of green dresses. Um, and even when she takes her dress off and the green silk, uh, sorry, satin bow to go into um, the hole under the tree, her slip underneath that is green as well. Everything about her is doorway. It's intersection. It's this this girl who has one foot in one world and one foot in the other, and that makes her emblematic of a, a concept which is very old in mythology, the spirit child that wants to have a physical body, whether that be just because they want the experience of being human, whether it's because they've got to become human for a short time to learn something, whether it's because they have been foisted upon a human mother by a, a, a divine father or, or some combination thereof. But she's this person who is between two worlds and that's the the things where they blend in terms of color in terms of shape um are all those are all her things her places and uh as you were talking it made me think so the blue filter that they use it, i think it is called steel blue or, or something like that blue steel. it's the same oh well, same as Derek Zoolander. <laughs> exactly but it's it's actually the same filter they used in devil's backbone where it has that like a green metallic but in a nature scene it makes the greens pop more which is one of the reasons why they kept it and i th i think that's what you're saying is is really on point and as we were talking it occurred to me that the the doorways that she draws with the chalk are very time limited 
that it's almost like using magic to impose this shape is 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 uh, it just collapses in on itself and there's only so much time that it's that it can hold that intersection mm-hmm. and that time where uh, it's in very rapid succession that the mandrake shows up the uh, the doorways are drawn and the dagger is obtained is when the two worlds really start meeting uh, especially, well, I mean, really all there. And then the dagger, like you were saying, Alex, is seems like it's very emblematic of that joining of the two worlds. And then you've also got the fact that you, you're right about the time limiting, and obviously that is a, a classic um, marker in fairy tales, the idea that you have so many nights or so many hours to complete this yeah. task. He says it'll be a full moon in three uh, three nights' time. Just yeah, to... towards the end, he tells yeah. us she's only got three days left before the full moon. But the using the moon as the thing which gives you your timer as well, and the moon itself being this vivid circle um, that kind of gives you a, a gateway or a doorway... And one other thing as well, speaking of doorways, uh, when she goes into the pale man's room, Mm -hmm. she comes in through a square flat doorway and she goes out through the top of the archway. Hmm. Which she still draws a square, but it's it's a more rounded shape. But it's it's curved, yeah, because of the the ceiling that she's going up through. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, Del Toro refers to this as the story of a girl who gives birth to herself. This is not about a girl completing three tasks. It's about a girl completing one task, screwing one task up, and deliberately defying the orders of the third. Ophelia's temptation is to return to her fantastical home and escape this terrible world at any cost. But the cost, she ultimately decides, is too high. Ergo, she keeps her soul intact by declining to let the innocence of others be destroyed. Thus, she retains the memory of her own wounded innocence. Which is a very important element of distinguishing between uh, the the kind of innocence which is ignorance. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, no knowledge of good and evil, therefore no ability to commit evil tasks, uh, evil acts. And the kind of innocence which knows of pain, knows of evil, and chooses not to embrace them. Juxtaposed with the very worst of our deeds as a species and the horrors of war and brutality, our fantasy is a glimpse of the way the world could be. Maybe not what it should be, but the notions of no pain or death are a variation on eliminating our fears of these assured occurrences. And no abuse or victimization, uh, just and fair and noble leaders, these are things we can actually aim for. We never have to hit the fanciful heights, but without them as a measure, we have no hope of ever crawling forth from the mire of our own atrocities. We need those dreams. So fantasy allows us to aim away from how fucked up the world is. Yeah. There's two things you have to be able to do in order to make change in your world. The first is to accept the way your world is, because you can't make any alterations to it if you are closing your eyes and sticking your fingers in your ears and running around going, la, 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 it's not like that. The second thing is to be able to imagine it differently. And if you can do those two things, 
the bit in between is just hard work and persistence. Well, it's not just, obviously there's more to it than that, but hard work and persistence and being able to join those dots. This, by the way, is why uh, the end of Ready Player One pissed me off. It's like, <laughs> stop playing video games, kid. Get yourself a girlfriend. Stop indulging in vain fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> I think one thing, though, that, that makes this really significant in terms of uh, how it pertains to fascism and political and military authoritarianism is that you can imagine fair and noble leaders all you like you can imagine a world in which children don't die and terrible things don't happen but you can't just sit there and pretend that the world is that way already things have to be done to stop those things from happening so you have to pass back out of the fantasy and actually start working towards something Mm. yeah Exactly. That's that's how best to use fantasy. That's how best to use imagination and, and yeah. just dreaming of something that could be better. Yeah, exactly. I um, actually heard the or heard read an example of how the 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 other kind of fantasy, the kind that doesn't really do you a lot of good when you're in a difficult situation. It was referred to as um, mind ice cream, like just the kind of fantasy that lets you while away your hours pretending that things are better or wishing that things are better and in the meantime you lie in a corner and die of cold as opposed to mine protein yeah yeah indeed (laughs) well it's it's the difference between hollow escapism and uh using that kind of of fantasy for hope Mm. and and it's really like the whole film it's uh one of the major themes subtext because in the beginning it's much more rooted in reality and it's very violent and very visibly upsetting uh like the first major act of violence is upsetting to watch and then as the fantasy comes back and as uh hope comes back into the world the violence actually gets more and more downplayed until in the end it's uh you know it's very subtle it's like a simple gunshot not a lot of mess or fuss really and it's just boom done it's still creepy but uh there's a lot of sort of cutting away from the worst of the violence Mm. rather than forcing you to dwell on it yeah but there are scenes in this i still can't look at i I have to close my eyes i just can't Uh, brain creates sensation it's not healthy too much empathy yeah uh so the mundane Juxtaposed with the fantastical, speaks of a dissatisfaction and fear of the cold, hard, blue real world and a desire to return to the place before we are born, which may also be the place where we go when we die. Either way, it's outside of the real and quantifiable, enmeshed and close by, but at the same time an infinite distance away. It's warm and red and uterine and full of gateways. There is the promise of no death or pain or sickness or worries. This perfect world features in some form often in fairy tales and seems designed to be wistfully dreamt of by those who do experience suffering a land of milk and honey she actually gets offered milk and honey at she one does. point doesn't she? yeah absolutely tirna nog the land of youth and beauty which was mentioned in titanic by heavily Irish Vasquez. Oh, it's Celtic. And there are strong Celtic influences in this as well. The Big Rock Candy Mountain, as sung by... Do you remember that one? I know the song. Yes. 
It's got cigarette trees, dude. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't think there are cigarette trees in heaven. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's supposed to be like a hobo's version of heaven. Okay. But that's, that's what I mean. The, the, the hobo is someone who experiences daily pain and suffering and needs to dream of something better. That's where that, like, just go and check out the lyrics to the Big Rock Candy Mountain. It is literally a hobo's dream. Okay. Although you say Big Rock Candy Mountain, and I'm thinking of that, the story about the bird that flies across the universe and brushes its wingtip against a mountain mm. and gradually wears it away only now I'm imagining that the bird flies over there and licks it in the Big Rock Candy Mountain the cops have wooden legs so they can't chase you the bulldogs all have rubber teeth so they can't bite you the hens lay soft boiled eggs so you can get a meal just by going to a chicken coop the farmer's trees are full of fruit the barns are full of hay so you've always got something to eat something somewhere to sleep oh I want to go where there ain't no snow where the sleet don't fall and the wind don't blow where there ain't no snow where the sleet don't fall and the wind don't blow in that big rock candy mountain. Okay. <laughs> well, I've sung it. Anyway, the West is another one of these. Uh, Elsinon, is it Valinor in Lord of the Rings? The place where the elves go yes, to? Yes, I believe so. Yeah. 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 Or Valhalla in Norse mythology, although that was more of an eternal party in a mead hall. And now we're talking about other words for heaven. The concept has existed as long as there has been dissatisfaction with the world and fear of its horrors. Mm-hmm. So it's very, I mean, it's very easy to read the end of this as she dies and goes to heaven. The time before life and the time after life being the same place and it all being this circular thing... That strikes a very strong chord with me, and I've I've never quite sat right with the idea of the Garden of Eden was where we were, and then we were very bad, and we got kicked out, which I still maintain, by the way, is a metaphor for, well, once upon a time, we were monkeys, and we lived in trees, and everything was fantastic, and then we started eating cooked meat, and then we started thinking, and then it all got fucked up. And then we so. started using bone tools, and then they started turning into spaceships. <laughs> and then and hitting each other with bone tools, and then it just, no. In it's slow been motion. downhill since there. <laughs> um, but but that it's now, instead of sort of trying to get back to the Garden of Eden, it's getting to this mystical destination that nobody's ever really going to see or be able to report back mm. on, because once you've gone through the gate, you can't come back again. That, that to me, is existence as a straight line which doesn't make a lot of sense to me. The circular thing where you come from the world and live through the human world and then go back into where you were before. Mm. That makes much more sense. Fascism as a true evil. So exemplified by Captain Vidal, played by Sergio Lopez, fucking bone chilling uh this monstrous angry fearful neurotic bully obsessed with control lashing out with sociopathic violence whenever that control is compromised the ultimate end point of fascism which is at its core control of others through fear of violence and he himself is super paranoid the whole time he's always worried he's being lied to he's always jittery and twitchy he reminds me of voldemort Mm, yeah who is another exemplary uh uh, hero of fascism yeah i mean del toro refers to him as a control freak and it goes way beyond that um but he is he exerts this desire for control over everything himself his wife his uh stepdaughter his future son 
everybody around him, he wants to be in control of all of it. He has to hold the only keys. He has to hold the only weapons. He has to be in charge of absolutely everything that goes on. Mm. He dishes out the rations. Um, but for no other reason other than that he wants to limit what people have access to. There's no real indication that there's still shortages, at least not that severe. Mm. They keep saying tobacco hard to find, don't they? Mm, yeah, which, I mean, it does make sense. Towards the end of, of World War Two. you know, a lot of things would have been very limited, but they restrict the ration cards to one per family mm. rather than one per person, which even some of his own men think is a bit harsh. Yeah, but he, he's... Um much like Voldemort, he, he's kind of gotten to the stage where he wants to now terrify his own men because everyone else isn't enough. Mm, yeah, but you notice this control immediately. As soon as Carmen and Ophelia turn up, he insists that Carmen get in a wheelchair, mm. even though she doesn't need to, and points out that she doesn't need to. And when he horribly murders that poor uh, rabbit hunter with a bottle and then finds out there were rabbits in his bag and he was telling the truth, he's irritated mm. because that was information not given to him and it's it's almost like he probably still would have killed him but he would have killed him for different reasons and it irritates him that he killed him for other reasons because he suspected he was lying mm. well also in that scene he loses control yeah briefly and to lose control in front of men that he has authority over i would imagine compromises his his concept of who he is. And this is why punching Nazis is so great. It tells them, <laughs> yes, we're afraid that you'll grow too powerful and we're going to stop you before that happens. We won't kill you, but we will punch you. It's a fine line to walk, taking down bullies without becoming a bully yourself, especially when they accuse you of it, especially when it's so satisfying to bring a bully down. But three things must definitely keep the Nazi puncher and the Nazi forever separate. And it's important to remember these three things. Number one, the Nazi puncher is protecting those who aren't strong enough to punch the Nazi. And thus, they are those the Nazi would bully if left unpunched. Secondly, there has to be a proportional response. Six Nazi punchers punching one single Nazi is bullying. Keep it fair, people. Mano a Nazi. And thirdly, we aren't rounding up and executing Nazis, which is, let's face it, the ultimate end of fascism. Uh, as I was watching the film, I don't know, for the second or third time, it occurred to me that Vidal actually has a very specific version of sociopathy, mm -hmm. where he believes, essentially, to, to mix metaphors a little bit, he believes he's the main character of this video game, mm -hmm. and that everybody else is just NPCs to at his whim. So he, he kind of thinks he's the main character in Skyrim or whatever, and he can just do whatever he wants, and everybody else has to react to that. Yeah. Every action he takes, and the, the paranoia, like you were talking about, is very emblematic of the time period and of this point in the Spanish Civil War, because most of the rebels, most of the guerrillas had been flushed out, but there were still a lot of sympathizers everywhere. And that paranoia really becomes fairly pervasive and Ophelia even gets paranoid at the fawn at one point mm -hmm. but decides instead to trust him rather than go in with that paranoia for a variety of reasons while Videl is like possessed by his paranoia in the end 
like his big speech that like he clearly had planned you tell my son blah 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 is supposed to be this in his mind it's like this heroic moment and then mercedes robs him of that and he looks so lost in that split second before they kill him mm. that it's it's just so perfectly shown on screen that kind of sociopathy it's so like profoundly specific and and i really appreciated that what you say about the the protagonist idea lauren i think you spot on there and i think it goes beyond that as well i think he he feels like he can actually control reality simply by saying it is so Mm. um the story about his dad's watch and that he broke it at the hour of his death so his son would know when he died and he's like you're talking nonsense he didn't even carry a watch He has that watch in his pocket. What are you talking about? You know it's there. But he feels like he can say that, and it is the truth, because it is him who said it. That's another thing fascists tend to do. Mm, Yeah, exactly. And also the fact that he feels like he he can say one thing, and it be the truth, and there also be something else which is totally opposed to that, and that also be the truth. So you're saying that they they tell him, and then he smashed his watch just before he died. Oh, fake news! He never had a watch. Mm. Yes. He- well, it, <laughs> it's it's the process that that fascism and and fascists uh, want to rewrite history. Yeah. Uh, and it's really prevalent in in all the various forms of fascism. Even that one. Um, uh, Dan Olson did a great video on uh, folding ideas. Did a great video on uh, that Nazi movie what is it by lenny riefenstahl the triumph the triumph of the will okay which is supposed to be like this this great show of strength and power and it's supposed to be groundbreaking for for film and dan's video is all about how that's blatantly untrue that it's not something special it's nothing it's them trying to rewrite history in their own image so that everybody would remember them in a certain way and the fact that this film is actually held in that esteem by in certain like film critic circles shows that it worked uh videl saying no he didn't even carry a watch is essentially like gaslighting the people in the room so that he can control the narrative so that he can rewrite history into whatever form he wants absolutely and anybody who is compliant with that and says oh okay we don't think you're right, but agree to disagree, is effectively allowing him to do that. And that's one of the reasons why, if you if you watch, the things that anger him the most, that cause him to lose that veneer of control, are defiance. Anybody who contradicts him and sticks to that. Yeah, I think that actually kind of ties in with what we said on the Saga podcast, the whole let's agree to disagree when it comes to, say, the issue of abortion. Let's agree to disagree doesn't work when the people in charge wholly disagree with the rights of women. Mm, If they make it legally impossible for them to get an abortion, agree to disagree means fuck all. Yeah, and also if somebody's arguing that they should have the right to kill you, agree to disagree fundamentally doesn't work. Yeah, so ultimately agree to disagree that only works when you are in a largely liberal, socialist-controlled society where people actually do kind of get to debate ideas. Mm, yeah, it's, it's... Or, ideally, within democracy. Ideally. What is it? Democracy is the worst political structure except, except for all the others. others. Two more things about Vidal, uh, who states plainly that there are people who believe that we are all equal. 
that these are vermin who must be exterminated, which sums up the fascist. Same as Jacinto in The Devil's Backbone. They believe themselves superior beings, and they will kill anyone inferior who gets in their way. This is a sickness of the human spirit and a reaction of fear and anger to being denied something. Tell you what, guys. You think you're superior beings. I don't think you're superior beings. Agree to disagree? You can't agree to disagree. They'll kill you. (laughs) (laughs) It's a particular intersection of narcissism and sociopathy, specifically. And it's, yeah, very prevalent in that mindset, shall we say. If it's taken to its uh, fullest extent, whether that person gets an extreme amount of power like Fidel or not, they believe that they are existence. And if they died, everything else goes. Mm, that, that There's no one more important than them, and they are literally the Red King. Yeah, that's, that's an extreme version of it Mm. and the seed of it will usually be the complete opposite of that that they're terrified that they actually don't exist Um, the problem with dealing with anything that has a streak of narcissism through it and Lauren you can tell me if I'm wrong on this one but I believe part of the issue is that anybody who thinks like that can't entertain the idea that they have a problem it's always everybody else's problem the, the fundamental aspect of narcissism that you're talking about is that any proof to the contrary of them being the best creates such cognitive dissonance that in negotiating that, they, they can't believe fundamentally that they're not the best. So whatever is being said about them must be lies, a conspiracy, something like that. And it's because of that cognitive dissonance brought about by their inherent narcissism. And sometimes they take to Twitter and we can see it when they break down. (laughs) Yeah, well, this is true. But then those the existence of those tweets will later be denied. Um, But this is the thing. It's finding a crack to get through to find somewhere on some level that that person wants to change anything is really, really hard. Because you can see there are moments when Vidal is alone that he he does things or has expressions on his face that do suggest he knows. He knows how bad he is. Mm-hmm. He is or he he has something inside him that says, You don't deserve to exist. You don't deserve to do this. This is not right. It's it's there, but it can't be allowed to surface. It oh. can't be all the best performances of this kind of like super fascist have just that little bit in there that Ray finds as Voldemort's got it, especially in the last Harry Potter film when he starts to get weak and scared. Noriega, the uh, the fellow who played Jacinto in um, Eduardo Devil's- Noriega, Eduardo Noriega, the guy who played um, uh, Jacinto in uh, Devil's Backbone, definitely has it, and this fellow has it. There's another key between the two of them that Del Toro specifically delineated, which is that they both lie, and they not only lie, they lie to one of their allies. Like the the, the thing about the watch, it's when Jacinto gets asked, do you have a cigarette? And he says, nope. And then they drive off and he lights up his cigarette. Cause... They lie when they don't need to. Yeah. And that goes back to control, to control the story of what's going on. And uh, when uh, Vidal is shaving, ha- how do you guys interpret the point when he looks at himself in the mirror and then runs the razor across his reflection 
I, I think because that's that's late enough in the film that things are starting to fall apart for him and things aren't going the way that he wants. And it's just a manifestation of like that frustration coming out in, in, in like the most self-destructive way because the world is refusing to uh, shape itself to his image. And uh, it's it's a very specific scene. But that was, uh, I think, the proximity of it to the the rebel starting to like win, or, or the the turning point, if you will, for the 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 fascists, the phalanges, technically, is the version of fascists that they were. Um, yeah, it, that's what I think. I also think it comes from a measure of uh, his own self-loathing. I think uh, I mentioned last week that Jacinto knows he's something of a monster and he's terrified to admit it. Vidal knows he's a monster. And he possibly believes he's the only one who has the power to take himself out. Mm, yeah. The fact that his um, his wound, the, the wound inflicted by Mercedes, is a facial one. Yeah. Um, that it gives, it puts a literal crack in his visage um, that he immediately acts to repair. Like he doesn't, he doesn't seem to do much about the stab wounds in his chest and mm. his back, which are probably at this point are more damaging. Mm. Um, but you've got to stitch the face up, man, and keep the stitches small. small. I love, I love that scene. It's. Like I, I again, I have difficulty. That that's one of the bits that I have difficulty watching. I love seeing I, him. I got no problem with that bit. <laughs> see, I love seeing him get torn open by uh, Mercedes. I hate seeing him stitch himself back together. It just the 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 hook through the ah. But <laughs> it's the Did fact guys... that it looks so terrible when he does. Like does it? He he patches himself up. He puts on the uh, the gauze. Then he takes a drink and it soaks straight through and causes immense <laughs> pain. And it's like you. This looks terrible. You almost would have been better just leaving it. Did you watch the making of the special effects feature? It, uh, we did. Yes. When so they actually like that's an appliance over his face that he stitches shut. Like oh shit, I right missed there. that one. I was watching the yeah. one about the fawn and the the pale man, but I don't think I saw they, that one. They actually painted. Oh hang on. His oh I remember blue. now. You've got the Criterion Edition, you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> um, do, do, do you mean that you didn't have the four prequel animatics? <laughs> <laughs> Or, or what about the trailer? Is that is that one? Was that on your disc? Oh, that we, was probably on your disc. Listen, but. we've got cast bios, and we're happy with them. <laughs> Ooh, do you have an anamorphic DVD menu? Yeah, we've, <laughs> we've got one of the ones that it's just it's just a pink pink Windows Paint looking screen with Do you want the movie or not? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh, we we got some really nice uh, extras and a, and a, a lovely little a um, uh, couple of things, but I could certainly do with some more Criterion. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, so tell us about this this appliance. So, so what it is is it's just a simple uh, facial latex appliance that they made for the upper part and the lower part of that cut of his cheek. Okay. And uh, they actually painted his cheek and the side of his mouth blue so they could chroma key it out. Ah. And uh, the rest of it is literally there on his face, and he is stitching the appliance together mm-hmm. on his face in that scene. And the the person who is narrating the the featurette. Was like he's such a brave man, like to, to be doing that right there. 
So the uh, the bit where he he roars after Mercedes gets away and his his face splits open it, again immensely satisfying. It's this character who's so smug and hateful and does so many horrible things that when like it's like watching Downfall, you know, you, if you actually just sat, like, I know everyone's seen the Hitler goes nuts meme a million times, but if you actually had to sit down and watch Downfall, it's a weird kind of empathy buffer zone where you're like, oh, this is so sad. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Interesting that the word Schadenfreude is German in origin. <laughs> it's just so satisfying to watch these Nazis fall apart and end up screaming and tearing each other to pieces in their death throes. Wonderful film. Recommended. <laughs> well, that scene whenever Mercedes uh, cuts him up and then walks out, I love the fact that his second in command, second and third in command, are standing there kind of, and they're like, oh, he let her go. That's weird. Like, they're like, oh, well, all right, well, he must have wanted that to happen if that's what <laughs> happened. And, and it's just... I love the fact that moment where they're so kind of enthralled with what's going on. They're just kind of like, okay, like he might like that's if it's weird, happening, it must be because go. he wants it to happen. He, he sows the seeds of that himself because yep. what does he say about the rebel that they bring in? If I say this guy can go, is anybody going to contradict me? Brilliant. He fucks himself on that one. <laughs> I hadn't even spotted that. That as a setup, but yeah. Nice. Yeah. And it's just, it, and it's so emblematic of his control over his own troops. Mm. Yeah, and doesn't he say when they go after her in the end, bring her back alive because he wants to kill yes. her himself? Mm. So yes, they yes, do, yes. and as a result, One of the major themes, and it leads directly on from here, is disobedience as redemption. Uh, This plays out repeatedly through the film. Del Toro is espousing the virtues of refusing to commit a moral wrong that you know you will pay the price for refusing. There are three categories, and each of the main characters fits into one. Some are stronger within their group, but these are fundamental, and they bind them all together. So there's... The disobedient, you've got Ophelia, and these are all the good guys. You've got Mercedes, you've got Dr. Ferrero, and we've got Pedro, who is Mercedes' brother. So all of these characters fight back. Two of them die, two of them live. But the ones who die, die triumphantly because they've done the right thing. Uh, Del Toro pointed out that the doctor, even though he walks out of there knowing he's going to be shot in the back that that walk would be the proudest moment of his life. The, you know, the moment that he's kind of cowardly, much like the Doctor in the, the Devil's Backbone, but this is a point when he decides to defy. It's a redemption. Yeah, And there's a, a commonality between Ferrero and Mercedes as well in that they both, um, they gripe under the obedience that they are feigning, hmm. but they're doing it in order to be able to help the rebels. Yeah. So I think Mercedes says at one point that she wishes she could be braver and that it that she feels like a coward because she lives in the same house as, as Vidal mm. and never does anything. But she's the, the amount of good that she is able to do for the rebels, she's kept them sustained as long as she has by stealing food for them. She's getting them information. She's doing all sorts of things that if she just walked into the room and stabbed him one day, 
she wouldn't be able to achieve. They would just replace him with somebody else and she's dead, so she can't do any more for them. And Ferrero sneaking them antibiotics and um, uh, sustaining them in other ways. Operations on them. Yeah, absolutely. The second category is the obedient. So Carmen, that's Ophelia's mother. The rabbit hunters who do as they're told. The the poor uh, gorilla who is disobedient, but then ultimately is tortured into obedience. Although he then chooses death for himself before he can say too much, which is redemptive disobedience. And then Garthez, who is uh, Vidal's number one man, who is obedient to Vidal. All of these characters die. Carmen dies during childbirth. Now, there was nothing that could really have stopped that unless the the, uh, mandrake really was keeping her alive, in which case... Uh, the uh, the enforcer effectively killed her by refusing to uh, accept the plan of the disobedient. The rabbit hunters were just doing as they were told, and they were murdered where they stood. And the number one enforcer is, of course, Vidal, and he dies as well. So the only two at the end who are still alive, um, Mercedes and Pedro, the disobedient... I believe that the the statement on this movie is clear that it is far, far better to be brave and to, to deal with the fear and overcome that and be disobedient than to do as you're told and die the same as the disobedient and live in fear throughout your life. The essence of it for me is not necessarily about disobedience in and of itself because that can be uh, petty rebellion yeah that i mean yeah, smashing a, up a phone a, booth isn't yeah no 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 but, disobedience but like because you refuse of, to do a moral wrong yeah exactly but it's it it's for me it's about being true to yourself hmm. and doing i don't know what, being true to yourself could be like well, my 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 inside of me just wants to destroy phone booths of course, you can't do that these days. Well, that's a very 1980s way of striking out against <laughs> the government. You've got to find one first. Take that, Thatcher. <laughs> well, that's because people like you have destroyed all the phone booths. <laughs> well, there you go, then. Well, I'm disobedient. That's what I do. I see a phone booth, I smash a phone booth. <laughs> Wash it down with a cup of steaming hot rules. <laughs> um, uh, what was I talking about? Being true to yourself. Yeah, yes. that's it. It's, it's about looking at a situation and listening to your own inner voice which for some people is is very very quiet because they're out of practice for listening to it and i think what the the most appealing and um emulatable quality that ophelia has is that she is guided by her own instincts and when her instinct says, listen to the fawn, there is a little bit of her that, like you say, Lauren, becomes a little bit paranoid and, and isn't sure about whether or not she can trust. But she has the faith in herself, ultimately, to trust those instincts and trust the fawn. And she has an instinct to defy him in the moment that it matters, when she's being asked to sacrifice the child. 
And it's even in uh, more subtle ways, like uh, she defies the fairies pointing to the center door mm-hmm. when she's trying to get the dagger from the pale man's mm-hmm. domain. And in the moment, she goes with her instincts for the left-hand door for no reason. Like, there's no discernible reason why she should go for that door over the others, except for, like, a, like her own instincts, her own, like, gut feeling. Mm-hmm. So even on, like, a small scale like that. Speaking of the Pale Man, uh, the Toad and the Pale Man are the, I think, the fantasy world versions of Vidal. They represent this cruel level of control. I think was the Toad just eating everything within the tree, taking it all for himself. Yeah, I think that there's greed and gluttony yeah. and um, and hoarding. Yeah, the idea of you're the only thing in this kingdom. You get to eat everything. Yeah. And the pale man's got this enormous feast he couldn't possibly ever eat. And she takes two lousy stinking grapes, and that uh, is a death sentence to him. There's also heavy concentration camp imagery within the uh, the frame with that pile of little shoes. Mm, there is, yeah. and, and mythological imagery as well, because the idea of... Um, if you go into a mystical realm, don't eat the food. Mm. They won't let you leave. And the grapes that she takes are right next to two pomegranates. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Uh, well, since we're talking about the pale man, uh, this might be a good time. Uh, I mentioned get used to not it, sleeping, folks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is the most hideous thing you'll ever lay eyes on. Well, the um, so I mentioned before that the Criterion Collection has a four-part animatic prequel setup. Uh, and one of them is specifically on the Pale Man. I think the other three aren't that interesting. There's one for the Toad, one for the Fairies, and one for the Fawn. And the Fawn, it just says that he went and opened uh, these portals, and eventually they kind of closed on their own through time until he rooted himself. It specifically says that he took root at the one in Spain, and that's the one that you see him at. The the Toad just... um, climbed under the tree to uh, bask in the warmth of a a growth of amber, is what it said, which I think they even cut from the final film. Um, And that one's, like you said, just all about gluttony. The the fairies didn't have a a whole lot to them, although I do want to point out that they're the same color as the fairies from Sleeping Beauty. Red, green, and blue, yeah. Mm -hmm. But the Pale Man was the longest and most interesting of the four. And the Pale Man in this prequel setup says that he was once very gluttonous and he he ate his fill and then some and his punishment was to sit in front of that feast and uh not be able to eat any of it which is why the pale man actually looks like uh somebody who was once very fat and lost a lot of weight has all those like skin flaps Mm. that's why she takes grapes it's tantalus the the reason the dagger is there in the first place is that the pale man believed it was the one thing that could kill him and uh, so he he had it there to watch over it in his eternal tantalization. But in reality, once it was removed from his domain, he vanished from, like, reality. That the dagger was the one thing keeping him bound to, rea- like, existence. Which sounds very fairy tale like to me, because even in the end of the film, the Pale Man, which is the the biggest literal monster of the film, does, in a sense, get its comeuppance, which is a very fairy tale thing. The evil get punished. It just never comes up in the film proper. We never see uh, it. That, the fact that the Pale Man, that nothing happens to him, is sort of like a dangling thread of the main film in that like fairy tale 
logic that, that in that genre tropes the imagery of the actual pale man sequence there's a famous painting by francisco goya saturn devouring his son horrifying in its um intensity it was painted by goya on one of his walls in his autumn years after he'd seen the country of spain he loved and the simple idyllic lifestyles he had once painted become torn apart with conflict and regression. This wasn't a painting for us, it was one of his nightmares. All credit to the nerd writer for filling in the history on this one for me. Saturn was the father of gods, the father of everything, and the natural order would be that one of his sons would eventually depose him. That is the way of things. So to prevent this, he eats destroys, devours one of his sons, clinging to his power in the grip of madness. But the mother of Jupiter, or Zeus, um, wanted that child to live, so gave him a rock in a swaddling blanket instead. He ate that and thought it was the child, and so the child survived. That's fascism, because fascists kill children. That's the, again, the ultimate end of what they do. That giant pile of shoes... The, the insanity is in destroying the younger generation, is in being so backwards that you do not understand they are supposed to succeed you. They are supposed to go on and do better things. That's why at the end of both of these films, a child survives, even if it's just the baby in the case of this one, and the, the older child is taken out of the world. That is the casualty of war. The children at the end of The Devil's Backbone get to walk out into the sunset, even though the two actors playing Jaime and uh, Carlos are two of the gorillas killed in the forest. That, uh, uh, that The one that um, Vidal takes his hand away from his neck wound, that's Jaime. And Is I, that actually the same actors? I know it's the same actors. said it was the same characters. It's the same actors. I don't know whether they're supposed to be the same characters. They are billed as Gerila 1 and Gerila 2. But if you want to read into that, they, they, they got away from one monster who was a human and the worst monster in the world, and they encountered another monster who was, in fact, a human. Yeah, I, I interpreted it definitely that they were supposed to be the same characters. It was like 10 years past, and, and then, or however many years past, and then well, this happened. Five years past. Yeah, f- five, five years past in oh, our world and within the world of the Civil War. It was, it was the same amount of time between making this film and, make, and uh, finishing that film. Oh, yeah, and they'd be the appropriate age then, too. Yeah. Um, but the, the last bit on the, the Pale Man is also the scene is set up to specifically mirror the banquet that Videl holds, mm. where. He's he's talking with all of those other like vague heads of state with like you know there's the priest and the doctor and all that stuff and where they talk about the watch and there's all this food laid out it's actually made to specifically echo that yeah. where the pale man and the videl are both the the faceless fascist at the end of the table with the fireplace behind them uh, having like grown fat on their own evil but now kind of languishing in sloth in a sense like like being unable to like partake to the same level that they once did and although vidal is surrounded by people he might as well be as alone as the pale man because he doesn't recognize the humanity of any of those people and the pale man's uh feast uh, all, all set up while it is you know lots of succulent fruits and tarts and things it has the color coding of the entrails of a human body it's you know deliciously laid out but he eats people Yes. Oh, and uh, one of the when I first saw this film, when Ophelia eats the grapes, I'm like, why? 
why would you do that? But then, in watching it this last time, other than, you know, oh, it's, of course she eats the grapes, otherwise we wouldn't have the scene, and it's a genre trope. But I didn't realize it until this past time that it very specifically sets up that she hasn't eaten for two days going into that. And that it's just that she she was like, I can't not eat this. It's too, it smells too good. Like, I need something. But, like, her compromise of sorts is to just grab a couple of grapes and not go for like any of the heavier things and it's still too much yeah yeah but also i think there's an element of she is this child of two worlds technically this is as much her food as it is anybody else's Mm. and it and it gives her like persephone with the the pomegranate seeds it binds her back to that world and it's another example of the violence of the reality seeping over into that because it's her hunger from not eating for two days in real life that uh, provokes the violence in the fairy realm in the form of the pale man standing up. Mm, absolutely. And also, you don't think too straight when you haven't eaten for two days. Mm. I uh, I love the um, the fact that her mother, went, uh, at the beginning, gives her this lovely pretty dress and, and uh, you know says she shouldn't really get involved in uh, fantasy and she should stop you know put away all these childish things wear this pretty dress instead ophelia has the exact inverse priorities in that the 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 fantasy and the fairy tale side of things is what absolutely fascinates her and the dress she strips off almost immediately and it ends up getting covered in mud and her mother gets really upset about the dress whereas the fantasy is actually the really important stuff yeah that it's actually her daughter that was under threat not the dress but ophelia taking that off um is to me again a, a kind of a representative of the fact that she does have a foot in each camp she is being non-compliant by taking off the dress and saying stuff that for a lark i have toads to find Um, but also she tries to preserve it she hangs it on a tree and tries to keep it safe it's not her fault that it gets so filthy it's the fact that it starts to rain and it blows away and ends up in the mud and symbolically that attempt to try and keep it safe and effectively failing Mm. uh is what she does at the end with the uh, with her uh, half brother, and uh, that's symbolised by the little flower on the tree. And and that dress is also specifically uh, mimicking the Alice in Wonderland dress. And she goes down essentially. Well, it's a toad hole, but it's the same the same kind of uh, idea to meet Toad of Toad Hole. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but I I, I love. I love the moment where her mother gives her the dress and says, you will look like a princess, just as she's noticing the birthmark on her shoulder that shows, yes, you are a princess, and the clothes aren't really a part of that. Mm, Absolutely. In fact, if anything, they they cut her off from that because they bind her to the real world if she accepts them. I I find the way Carmen's presented quite interesting and and i mean that in no 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 no. he's looking at me but that i mean it in the in the correct you are interested i'm yes i am interested in how carmen is presented because if you if you look at the we talked before about the the kind of gender coding differences between uh devil's backbone and pan's labyrinth and carmen as a representative of the mother carmen in pan's labyrinth Mm -hmm. ophelia's mother she is the mother. She should be Ophelia's greatest ally in all of this. Her guide. And she is not. She undermines her. She doesn't do it in a way that is um, directly aggressive 
uh, like Vidal, but that's it's almost worse because it's insidious. She tells her, don't believe in magic. Don't embrace this fantasy. Uh, you're too old for this. You have to be a, a woman now. Wake up reality. Exactly. But Carmen has sacrificed every element of... Um, magic in her own life and and I say she's sacrificed she's had it taken away from her because the implication is that her husband's been killed mm. um, because of the fight she gives herself over wholly to Vidal and all of his exactly whims. and what she what she pursues by marrying Vidal is uh, is materialism she starts to well, whether she starts to or whether she had it already um, embrace his obsession with control wanting everything to be clean um, and and the the cost that she ends up paying for that um, is is her life she is effectively traded for the child mm-hmm. uh, because he has to decide yeah Vidal wishes it so. That's the thing. He is if he is effectively put in the same position as Ophelia. Sacrifice your wife so that your child may live, and he chooses to do that. Ophelia is told, sacrifice your brother so that you may live, and she chooses not to do that. Yeah. It, it makes um, Carmen sound terrible to pursuing uh, uh, materials. Carmen comes off as incredibly frightened the whole way through. Mm, she yeah, knows yeah. what a monster Vidal is. She has been backed into a corner, and I, I feel like he, Vidal's asked her repeatedly to come out here, and now she's finally relented. And she is entirely in his thrall, and she's afraid for herself, afraid for her unborn child, very afraid for Ophelia, and trying to put on the bravest face all the time. Yeah. But it's just a brave face to play along and play her part as the obedient which as we've already established dooms you absolutely and the the most and i know what you mean about it i'm making her sound terrible and and she isn't really she isn't a terrible person she is kind she loves ophelia she is very nurturing of her of her child self to a point but the reason that i find carmen so I don't know if if terrifying is even the right word. It's the fact that she lets her down when it counts. Frustrating. It's the frustrating will do. Yeah, thank you. Um, But it's she's she's the mother in the fairy tale who is has a child that is disapproved of by the village, and the village wants to throw the child out, and the mother says, "Okay then," and doesn't do what the mother in a story is supposed to do which is to stand between her child and the monster not step to one side and let it take her yeah and uh you know just to be just to complete the self-parody um you said mother so now we have to talk a little bit about uh, maiden mother crone because that always comes up whenever i'm here with you (laughs) Um, because i thought about it while we were while i was watching it and carmen who is obviously should be the mother doesn't really act well as it and ultimately the act of being a mother kills her while it's actually um mercedes that is ends up being more nurturing and more connected to the uterine fantasy realm than Carmen is. So she has to get her mother's milk out of a cow. I was just about to say she provides her with milk even if she doesn't produce it herself. (laughs) Continue, sorry. Yeah, but no, that's all it. I I feel like it's it's almost like the the mother should be Carmen, 
but she's been so consumed by mundanity or or just reality in general that that aspect that that uterine aspect that is associated with the fantasy realm has been completely removed from her much in the same way that a woman once she gets advanced enough in age and becomes a crone is no longer capable of being a mother and has to give up that that aspect and it's almost like she doesn't want to acknowledge that and in the end it kills her which would then make Mercedes the mother and obviously Ophelia is the the maiden and it was just I was just uh, kind of jiving on these uh, archetypes as as I was watching it because I was like I know we're going to talk about this because we always do well the the element of the crone and and Carmen sort of having a little bit of that aspect she does um, but I think it's it is pretty important that she refuses to um, kind of embrace that aspect if you like she's not the natural version of the crone which is somebody who has gained wisdom through experience and is able to pass that wisdom on um, and the the idea of a mother who is unable to protect her child um, or not unable to but culturally unable to or, or like is, is put in a position where she chooses not to um, there is that aspect of she's not doing it on purpose it's because she's been cut off from her own um, instincts and her own uh, gut responses to things and magic has been stripped from her life and I think Carmen is redeemed because when uh, Ophelia finally goes down into the magical world the mother that she finds there is Carmen she doesn't lose her completely yeah I thought that was a really a really nice touch at the end. And I don't think the, I agree with you. I don't think like the maiden mother crone, like concept really, really fits perfectly because there really is no crone figure, but it is, uh, I, I just love the fact that the one mother is cut off from the aspect of being a mother and dies for it. While the other one comes in to be like the new mother figure in the, in the hierarchy. But if you go to the um, that those original three categories I mentioned, the disobedient, the obedient, and the enforcers, we've already said a Vidal, obviously the most obvious enforcer, the Toad and the Pale Man are his fantasy equivalents. But does that not also make the Fawn, and by extension the King, enforcers? Because they're the ones setting the rules, which Ophelia has to follow, even if those rules are in fact secret trick rules that she has to disobey in order to prove herself. Mm. I think that's that's reasonable, yeah, certainly in terms of authority. I mean, the king in this is the king on a chessboard, as in totally ineffectual, can't do anything, doesn't go anywhere. He's up on a big high chair, so he can't do anything. the most powerful thing, because he's holding it all together. Mm. Um, he is what Vidal thinks he is. And the the fawn specifically, there's a lot to think that perhaps the fawn is a little bit more in control of things than uh, is at first glance, because that fawn's head imagery is all over the place inside that farmhouse. It's on yeah. the banister, it's on the, the, the headboard of the bed, uh, it's over the labyrinth, of course. It's almost like the fawn, even if he's not in the scene, is still there watching over somehow manipulating or controlling what's going on, but... 
not in a negative way, in a, in a way that is trying to help Ophelia become her true self, become better. It's almost a nurturing version of that that father aesthetic or that controlling aesthetic. And it comes in the form of, as you say, the, the horns, the labyrinth, the circle, the spiral. It's even in the pill bugs that curl up that the, um, the toad's eating. And that symbol is a feminine symbol, the circle mm-hmm. and the spiral. And for the, uh, the, the fawn to be, I mean, this, I know you said that in, in this it's not Pan, even though they call it Pan's Labyrinth, it's not Pan. But one of the elements of Pan that was considered so, uh, so terrifying to the uh, early Christians that tried to stamp out any worship of him um, was the fact that there was this, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Sorry, abandoned. my mind's gone totally ab- abandoned. Yes, thank you. Um, but that that was something that was was coded as feminine. That women don't have self control, and Pan was terrifying because he didn't have self control, and he encouraged people to let go of their control. That's it. Although I do love the fact that the fawn starts out as being almost tree-like and rooted in place. And then as the magic comes back into the world and is allowed to come back into the world, he gets healthier and healthier and, and more vibrant and at the end. Yeah. His, uh, yeah. I, I, I never noticed before, but he, his, one of his horns is broken and worn away on one side, and that comes back uh, when, he, when he's the younger fawn at the end. Mm, yeah. And it, his teeth are jagged and frightening until the end when, it's, when they become straight and, and yeah. much more uniform. Mm. And his movements as well at the very beginning are very, very shaky j- and jittery, yeah. jittery. And it, it almost looks like he's a, he's a, a robot of some kind, like mm. he's operated by clockwork. <laughs> and then by the end, he's become much more sinewy and fluid and, and it seems organic. like much more organic, yeah. natural movement. The, one of the final images in the film is Ophelia looks down uh, within the, in the fairy kingdom at her new shoes and they've got red laces. Explain the red shoes, Sharon, because this is a, a tale. There, there is an, yeah, there is an actual story of the red shoes, and the simplified version of it is that a little girl makes herself some handmade red shoes because she just likes the colour and thinks that they look awesome. And um, the old lady who she lives with thinks that these shoes are terrible and sinful and throws them away. And um, then... She finds some red shoes in a store and uh, asks to buy them. And because the old lady can't see very well, she agrees. So she has new red shoes. Um, And then she tries to take them off her again. And what ends up happening is that the girl decides she'll do anything to get those shoes back. And the devil turns up, gives the shoes back to her, but casts a spell on them, which means that she can't ever take them off. And so she ends up dancing herself into oblivion in the red shoes. And the kind of one of the meanings behind the story is that it's about, again, following your own instincts, developing your own life and finding your own truth. And there's a difference between the shoes that you make for yourself and shoes that somebody puts on you by force. Um, and if you pursue the thing rather than the instinctive impulses that go behind them, 
then it can turn into addiction and compulsion and, and something that you are pushed to pursue even though you might not want it anymore. There are dangers to uh, losing yourself in fantasy. The, they never explored it in Ready Player One, but there needed to be people who just wasted away online. Mm. Who, you know, the, the amount of deaths from people just wandering into the road wearing those goddamn virtual reality masks. Mm. That's just the, the, the most recent big fantasy world we've we've seen. But uh, you know, the, the, there's all kinds of parallels with serious drug addiction and uh, um, uh, or alcoholism or just something where you're using that to escape reality, and that's an imbalance. But there's another imbalance on the other side, which is to deny all fantasy, to try to wrench people away from fantasy, and to get to force them to accept reality. And a lot of the time that goes hand in hand, part and parcel, with accepting that terrible things happen and there's nothing we can do about it. Now that, to me, is reality as surrender. And to that end, to balance that with keeping a certain amount of fantasy to point the, in the right direction, to look for hope that occurs naturally in reality anyway... Animals are kind to each other. They don't, they don't necessarily need fiction to inspire them in that direction. You can get hope from just people. But fantasy is one of those things that, as a species, we feed on for hope. And to that end, I will never surrender to reality by eschewing fantasy. And I will thus never stop fighting and never stop being disobedient. Uh, it seems so inappropriate, but we were talking about the, um, like the very end where she goes into the the throne room Go for it. with her with her red shoes. No, it's just one thing I noticed this last time that the tiles on the floor literally create a vaginal shape that she's walking on in the middle of this giant throne room. That's like the final almost like birthing of the, her true self mm. and the the floor that she's walking on actually looks like a vagina let's not forget the entrance of the tree she goes through let's not forget the actual tunnel of the tree she slides through let's not forget the uh, even just the red corridor to the 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 pale man's room with its sort of like you know the ridged archways ridged archways yeah. it's and here's the great thing as well because it's del toro you know that unlike George Lucas, he probably did it on purpose. <laughs> did we mention on the We Need to Talk About Anakin, the arena of vaginas? The arena of vaginas. Well, the arena of vulvas, uh, in fact. arena of vulvas, yes. Yes, yes. Okay. It's in Attack of the Clones. Once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. Dear me. Is there room for survival? I, mean, I, I got no problem, no problem whatsoever with that level of symbolism turning up in your movie. I mean, it's got a little Freudian on it, but I got no issue with that. But no, you're doing it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It'd be nice. Have to a know purpose. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're doing it. Know why and think twice before you put it in a kid's film. <laughs> okay. The power of three. This ancient trope shows up again and again in the film. There are three tasks. There are three fairies. There are three stones for the toad. There are three locks for the key. There are two grapes and two eyeballs and two fairies' heads that the pale man eats. So that's three lots of two. Then there are the 
the torture implements, the hammer, the pliers, the awl. Then he tells the poor fellow with a stutter, if you can count to three, I will let you go. Then there's the king and queen and princess at the end, uh, that the, the three thrones, one of which is empty, waiting for her. Then there is the uh, obelisk with the uh, pan and the girl and the baby on the obelisk. And by the, by the way, when, when it's creepy if an old man says, that's me and that's you. Who's the baby? Nah. <laughs> So, yeah, um, you're a total creep, uh, Fawn. Uh, then get, Vidal gets killed in three ways. He is knife-wounded by a Mercedes, then he is poisoned by Ophelia, and then he gets a bullet from Pedro. Any other threes? Yeah, I got three rebels shot in cold blood, three ah. times the doctor treats Carmen, three times he helps the rebels, the antibiotics, the amputation, and then the euthanasia of the... Um uh, the stuttering rebel in the storeroom. Yeah. Um, three times Mercedes hides the knife in her apron, two in the kitchen, one after she escapes. That's a true Chekhov's knife. Yep. Three wounds she gives the um, the captain, the back, the front and the face. Why so serious? Um, three days till the moon is full after Ophelia confesses to the fawn. Three facial wounds, the rabbit hunter, the stuttering rebel who is beaten very badly and his eyes swell shut, um, mm-hmm. and obviously Vidal himself. Three times the laudanum is administered. Um, Carmen gets a dose when she arrives, a small dose when she's feeling better after the mandrake, and then it's used to excess on Vidal. Um, oh, that was laudanum. Oh, that makes so much sense. Okay. Laudanum, Sorry. huh? <laughs> three times Ophelia refuses to hand over the child. The fawn asks her three times to give the baby over, and she doesn't. Videl takes three shots of the whiskey, too. Oh, nice. Is that after he's got the horrible facial wound? He's like, maybe it won't hurt the second time. No, it still hurts. <laughs> it's still burning. Yep. It's still burning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's uh, also rhyming with the devil's backbone, and uh, uh, Del Toro made this uh, companion sister piece, uh, one being a boy's story about a ghost that takes the form of a gothic romance, the other being a girl's story about a fawn that takes the form of a dark fantasy. Um, They're both set during the end and aftermath of the Spanish Civil War, uh, sort of middle end. Uh, They both begin with an innocent child bleeding out, Jacinto and Vidal both lie to their allies. Uh, They both have a good doctor who dies. They both have a sweet matriarch who dies. They both have rebels who are captured and brutally executed. They both have a doctor who assists a fatally wounded person with dying. They both have the young and the old as virtuous pitted against evil adults in the middle. They both have a frog or a toad. Because uh, there's that little jumping frog thing that uh, Carlos gives to uh, Galvez. Uh, they both have a knife, and it wounds someone's face. Because um, Carlos gets uh, cut by Jacinto when uh, he uh, grabs him in uh, Devil's Backbone. Uh, they, well, technically, Pan's Labyrinth has two knives. It's got this you know, real-world knife and the very fantastical knife. Um and they both have a thug who is injured, representing the rot inside him. So Jacinto ends up with this bloodshot eye, showing how terrible he is inside. Uh, and uh, Vidal has this terrible facial wound, uh, which ruins their otherwise perfect uh, champion visage. Uh, and this thug is injured, uh, kills a child, and is then killed himself. Uh, the only survivors of both films are wounded children... 
The only survivors of the Devil's Backbone are wounded children. The only survivors of Pan's Labyrinth are depleted adult rebels. And, of course, the soldiers or henchmen who got away and just decided to abandon the fight. And one baby survives who will have a better father than he would have done without this story. And not to mention that both films take place within a single household that is warring with itself, much like the Civil War raging on outside. Absolutely. Indeed, and that's where the the parable element comes in, of course. Um, There was one other thing that I got as well, um, in addition to all of that, which was that uh, Carlos in Devil's Backbone and Ophelia in Pan's Labyrinth both arrive in a car accompanied by someone who will later die. And Um, both of them have a dead father. Both of them have a dead father and both of them carry books which is representative of this sort of innocent wisdom that they bring with them. And we haven't really mentioned her uh, uh, already, but uh, Ivana Baquero as Ophelia, one of the best child performances I've ever seen. She is wonderful. She has an enchanting glow about her the whole time, and I never felt anything other than uh, just, just adoration and wanting her to succeed. She's um, she's fantastic, and she commands the camera. And I, I, is she in like Shannonara Chronicles? The Shannonara Chronicles, yeah. yeah, yeah. Got to check those out. I, I I doubt that they'll be as good as this, but uh, I'll, I'll check those out just for her. Yeah, and since we're talking about uh, kind of pastiches to. Uh, Fairy tales and things. I think we called it doorways, but it should probably be more properly called crossroads, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the book that she has is the book of crossroads and all of the moments wherein the characters either disobey or obey become major crossroads, usually between uh, like reality and fantasy. And it, it and more often than not ends up in the character's death. But uh, the kind of value statement of that death is different depending upon if they obeyed or disobeyed, like you were saying before. Uh, Like Carmen, just as two examples, Carmen's crossroad point, I think, is burning the mandrake. That's like an actual act where she kind of goes down one path and it ultimately results in her death. Well, Dr. Ferreira, Ferrero, his crossroads moment was the assisted suicide because that's an overt action that he knows the ramifications are going to be bad for him where he injects and might i also point out it's a warm golden liquid into the dying rebel to kill him and then he walks out triumphant knowing that that choice that disobedience going down that path of the crossroads is going to result in his death but being okay with it yeah and also very specifically um talking about choice he makes that the soldier's choice the way he holds it, he gets him to actually push the plunger himself. Yeah, he allows him to to do because that he yeah himself. he yeah. he has to be allowed to make that final decision, and that's the difference between the kind of death that he, the doctor wields and the kind of death that Vidal wields, which is imposed and forced, forced and decided upon by him taking control of other people's lives.
the other thing I wanted to talk about is going to be something I bring up for every one of these films that uh, I'm going to be on, is again the way that objects define a character. It's something that Del Toro does in like all of his films. And uh, like to me, Ophelia's object, like, she has a lot of objects, but many of them are and many of them are given to her by the fawn, but I think the book specifically, the book of crossroads ends up being kind of her talisman or her totemic object because it's just, it's, it's representing her place as this person betwixt the reality and the fantasy. Cause it's a large heavy tome that writes itself and, and, and helps her. And it's a literal embodiment of the crossroads that are uh, ahead of her, but ahead of everyone in the film as well. Uh, Videl of course is obviously defined by his watch because he's very clockwork, very precise. He wants everything to be uh, predictable. He wants everything to be under control and he's always tinkering on his watch. And even behind him in those scenes, are large gear-like symbols, almost like he's working on the watch within a larger watch. Hold on. (coughs) I would say that Mercedes' object would be the knife, that little paring knife, where it's something that is small and hidden, but uh, representing kind of her bravery that is otherwise hidden and uh, that she's unable to really bring out into the forefront until she makes her crossroads decision and attack Videl with it, which is why she keeps, like, rolling it into her apron. It's like an inherent part of her where she's hiding that that bravery, that, that uh, capacity, a- until she needs it. Mm. And specifically, she keeps it next to her womb, which emphasizes her mother role. Mm. Yes, absolutely. And then even Dr. Ferrero, I think the antibiotics end up being more of a totemic uh, object for him because they're representative uh, not only of his medicinal practice, but his uh, subterfuge, his uh, helping the rebels under Videl's nose in whatever way he can. Or it could just be the medicine in general – uh, because the laudanum that he gives uh, Carmen and Ophelia ends up, you know, coming back to help the the side of good, if you will, mm. and the syringe full of of uh, medicine at the end that he uses to kill the uh, the rebel. Like it's just it's it's all of those. Maybe it's maybe it's his doctor's box is a better description of that. Mm. But I think you're right about the um, the the liquid medicinals specifically. And did you notice, by the way, the label on the laudanum? It just says administer as needed, and she. Uh, that's that's so good. Um, I couldn't think of an object that was totemic for Carmen. Uh, it might, may, it could possibly be the Mandrake, but that doesn't feel right for me. But she's spent the wheelchair so much. She doesn't need because even though she claims she can walk, Captain Vidal forces her to use a wheelchair. Maybe, well, but that's just like one scene. She sent. She spent so much of this movie kind of like how about just the bed oh the bed that's a really good yeah go to your bed and stay there well that makes perfect sense because she's kind of forced to the bed she's most of the scene she's in that bed and the headboard of it is the fawn it's it's that almost attempt at fantasy bleeding into the real world and she dies leaning up against that bed after she decides that fantasy is not her like what she wants to believe in Mm. i i like that 
dark time, when hope was bleak, there lived a young girl whose only escape was in a legend that wanted her back. The trailer for this movie is crazy pants banana town. Like, Is it garbage? I, I talked about the Devil's Backbone one, where the whole thing is it's kind of like, this scary ghost, oh no, be afraid. And only this and, handsome man can kill it. Yes. And in, in the Devil, or, uh, With a and Pan's, Pan's Labyrinth, now it was before Inception, but it had moments where you would have imagined that that Brahm Tell me it, it didn't Bwah. Oh my it, god. It, it could have if it had come out later. It oh. literally starts with the epic trailer voice man saying in a world where darkness This must have been the last one. <laughs> that must have been the I, last one of that guy going in a world and another world. <laughs> I could not believe it when Jesus. I was watching it. It was so not representative of the final film, I was just blown away. Yeah. Mind you, it could have been worse. They could have done it like this kind of Disney, happy, skippy kid's story of a little girl who puts on an Alice in Wonderland dress and goes through a doorway. But she's about to find land. out <laughs> that being friends with a fawn is it's harder than it looks. <laughs> so, bam, so you bam, The fun you pop joke. music. I'm pretty sure the line she's about to find out something 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 is totally in that trailer. I'd have to watch it again, but that's it's so weird. But they didn't count on one man and then it shows Vidal. The legend speaks of the lost soul of a princess from another world who will one day Um, now, watching it with commentary this time, uh, I'm sure I've heard the commentary before, but uh, uh, watching Film Joy uh, talk about Pan's Labyrinth, Mikey's conclusion at the end was that Ophelia dies a child as a result of war, and that is immensely sad. And then cue credits music. And he's right, but on Del Toro's commentary, he challenges his own ambiguity. It would appear that while Mark Kermod said... Two stories operating parallel. One of them about war, which is very tough, very brutal, very dark, very realist. The other about a young girl 
not escaping into a fancy world, but being enveloped by a fancy world, which is every bit as real as the real world. They feel like they can coexist without either one eclipsing the other. Uh, from Del Toro's point of view, when Ophelia gets locked in her bedroom and there's no way for her to get out, she gets out using magical chalk, which, as far as GDT is concerned, proves that the fantastical world is more than just hypothetical and allegorical, that it actually, in fact, does exist, which means that everything we see is actually happening and not simply symbolic of what's happening or what's happening internally. So while Ophelia does get that wonderful image of her triumphant at the end and then dies and then is wept over, it's still actually happening. I, I love the fact that you can interpret it either way. And what we're about to say doesn't actually apply to Mikey here, though I was surprised by his conclusion. Actually, we had, after the, our Babadook show, someone uh, sent us a, uh, a link to a Reddit page where it's like, this is what the Babadook is actually about. It's a Lovecraftian demon. It's this thing that can only appear if you know about it, and it has to make itself known. So it makes a book, and then da 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 and then like you can only see it in a certain way, and it drives you crazy when you see it, and then that that is what it is. So that calling it, that's the actual that's true Babadook, is what it is, and it's Lovecraftian horror, so I'm going to put it in a box marked Lovecraftian horror and then underline that with known, quantifiable, this is the thing that I can scientifically point at and go, that is what it is, therefore it's Lovecraftian. Do I not know Lovecraft? Well, I mean, the obvious... <laughs> the point of it being Lovecraftian horror is that you can't comprehend Bingo! it. Bingo! That's the point. Yes. yes. Um, not to so, mention the fact that Lovecraftian horror is symbolic of the things that the film was about. You sent me that link, and I have to say, I read it at work, and I sighed the deepest of sighs. And the well, person I who mean, sits next to me at work just looked at me and went, are you all right? <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason why a group of exhausting white men is called a subreddit. <laughs> <laughs> we have figured out the Babadook. It was Lovecraft in horror all along. <laughs> It's, 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 the Reddit is the perfect example of why the internet was a mistake. I would love to see Guillermo del Toro's version of a, lo a true Lovecraft story because... Guillermo, sorry. Oh! <laughs> you and your pronunciations. Look, I have a stuffy nose, okay. and I have been sick that for three days. That is very true. Okay. We give Lauren a break. Guillermo del Toro. The G-Man uh, <laughs> that... that if any director could bring that concept to a screen in a way that is both comprehensible by the viewer, but still embodies what makes that horror something special, it's Del Toro. I don't think anybody else could do it. And I don't think anybody else really has. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of in the a lot of, of movies. In the Mouth of Madness, Dagon, the Call of Cthulhu that was made by... Um, the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, like they're Event all Horizon, great. of course. Yeah. Oh, from beyond. I mean, they're 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 great, but they there's something about them that in the translation it loses an aspect of that existential horror, mm. and I think Del Toro could nail it given the chance and given the budget. I've never seen anything that's huge enough to really 
feel like Lovecraft. I think the closest one is actually Hellboy. I know you came out of it going, no, that was fun. The bit at the beginning where there's that giant thing in space or Mm -hmm. another dimension. We'll talk about that when we do Hellboy. And there are repeated little flashes of something so vast that it's going to absolutely devastate the world. That gave a little bit of um, like major blockbuster credence to uh, what is otherwise kind of reserved for lowish budget horror like Hellraiser. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's that sense of scale that you need yeah. for existential horror to work. I mean, like plenty of those other films, uh, In the Mouth of Madness, uh, definitely takes the the insanity aspect of Lovecraftian horror and how like mankind is like just a plaything for like outer outer beings but it doesn't have the scope Dagon has the despair and the oh we're all actually monsters or the the implicit um you know aspect of, of humanity being problematic as well but it again it doesn't have the scope uh all, and that's the thing that's been missing and the fact that Hellboy, like you said, is the closest anyone's gotten, and it's just that beginning part again. Make me think Del Toro could do it. Mm. I uh, think to be able to do Lovecraft with heart is a serious challenge as well. But again, I don't think I Del Toro could do it, it without heart no, because it's so ingrained in every single one of his projects. I honestly think what you're saying about scope, Lauren. I think the nature of film, in and of itself, makes it a ridiculously difficult medium to put across the scope of Lovecraftian horror in because it is contained on a screen. No matter how big that screen is, it has borders that you can see. It's boundaried. Mm. And this is this is one of the reasons why. When when 3D TV started becoming a thing, um, and I'm, I mean, I've never been a fan of 3D movies anyway because they make me feel queasy, but what 3D on a television set, to me, is utterly pointless because what you're looking at is no longer a representation of actual New York. It is a small diorama of New York in your house. And it actually makes everything look smaller and more contained. It's sitting in a box. And so I think to really get that scope, you need a different art form. I'm not sure what that art form would be but I don't think it's film. Oh, said, I can, uh, if anybody can get close, I think Del Toro can get close. Yeah. I think the ideal version or the ideal setting or medium, uh, maybe outside of the written word, is actually uh, role-playing, tabletop role-playing games. But that's uh, probably another conversation. Um, I think that another big problem is that movies have a specific language, a cinematic language, one that you can wax a verbose for two hours on a podcast, let's say. And... Uh, that kind of fundamental understanding of a scene, that, that being able to read a scene and know what the cinematography about, and that understanding also, I think, stands at odds to the existential horror. So it's not just scope, it's the unknowable scope. Mm-hmm. And Del Toro would have to not only depict that scope of the vast alien city under the Antarctic, it would also have to be done in a way that not necessarily subverts or goes against, but that twists the cinematic language enough that it feels just a bit alien to watch. Mm, Yeah, I think there would have to be a lot of silence and uh, music and sound effects that hint at depths. Which, again, is perfect. Del Toro hates dialogue, loves long stretches of visual storytelling, and in, um, In the Mountains of Madness 
one of the major audio pastiches is the uh, alien piping of the creatures that they uncover that would be perfect for how del toro does things oh i just remembered a uh, a director who's been clearly wanting to make one thing their entire career and should just be allowed to make it so that they can stop making things that are like it Zack snyder the fountainhead or atlas shrugged just something else which which uh, uh, you know celebrates ayn rand and her horrible horrible ethos on life however uh, one thing that del toro has said is that every filmmaker has one film in them he says he has he's got one film in him and he's telling it over and over again now you mentioned that Zack snyder thing i would love to see his take on bioshock because I feel like most other filmmakers making that wouldn't make Andrew Ryan as the hero much yeah <laughs> as much of a pity well like like a pitiable character like somebody that like the point of Andrew Ryan in that and we are so far afield but uh, is that he's still kind of likable even though his philosophy is odious he won't and, be when he's played by Johnny Depp oh no oh no <laughs> get your no. golf clubs folks. <laughs> Oh boy! But I, I don't know. Zack Snyder might be able to pull that off. But yes, maybe he would. So, somebody who has a fundamental understanding of what the politics of that game is parodying is not the word. Critiquing. I'm for. Critiquing. Thank you. Yes. It is exposing the flaws within a system that was set up by someone who couldn't see the flaws. Yeah. So I can see how having that critique adapted by somebody who understands what it is critiquing. Somebody who tried to do it without an understanding of what was being critiqued oh, yeah. would probably fall on their face. Yeah. Like, if you give it to Gore Verbinski, he'd, he'd give it a go, but he might get lost mm. in the visuals rather than the, uh, the, uh, the ethos. Yeah. Personally, I don't think Zack Snyder would be great at doing a Bioshock movie. Because his response would be, there are flaws in objectivism. Stick around for a very special bit at the end. Lauren, thank you so, so much for, uh, for coming on the show. It has once again been an absolute pleasure. Uh, I'm happy to be here and I'm glad that you uh, have invited me onto this series to go on this, this journey with you. Yay. <laughs> School of Movies is funded by our kind, generous supporters on Patreon. You people make the show happen. And our $15 tier get a named sponsorship credit on every episode, so a major thank you to Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Sarah Montgomery, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Junkius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, David Garcia Abril, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisholm. One thing I hadn't noticed and didn't realize until I read Del Toro's notebook on this film was that the mill Captain Vidal lives in, the place he's chosen to stay, the giant constantly moving internal cogs, he's inside his father's watch, voluntarily trapped in the past.
Gothic romance Let Them Go is nearing its conclusion. Here's a clip from episode 8. The thing outside. I know what it is now. Said Amanda, quite taking Rebecca by surprise. What? Her sister's voice was low and resonant, husky from crying. It's something ancient. Something that's been in mankind's shadow since the Garden of Eden. It's not a serpent. No. But it was there at our first downfall, and we've been secretly terrified of it ever since. She locked eyes with Rebecca. It follows us, my darling. It watches our contemptible behavior and waits. It's a reckoning. The answer to our question of what happens when we abandon reason. Response was frozen in Rebecca's throat. Amanda was gazing at her, unnervingly, with an intensity of conviction. All around the world, we've given names to these monsters. There are vampires in the graveyards of Budapest. Vitalas in the charnel grounds of India. Al Ghul haunt the Arabian Peninsula, and the Algonquin tribes of the Americas speak of the Wendigo coming in the depths of winter. But this beast at her threshold has been spoken of in England by another name. Amanda pulled herself half upright and spoke as though captive of a dream. The Black Dog, who foretells death in the family. It definitely wasn't a dog said Rebecca, in a manner she hoped was soothing. Maybe not on the outside. But I name him Barguest for everything he brings, and everything he has taken from us, and everything he will take. Search for The New Century Multiverse wherever you find podcasts. Guillermo del Toro on art. To me, the pre-Raphaelites are more surface-driven, more superficial. Vanity and aesthetics eventually overpower their spirituality and otherworldly power. The symbolists, on the other hand, tried to organize stuff like medieval painters did, where they would organize every detail in a painting to tell a story. Like a portrait of a young woman, she would be holding a peach which would represent the ephemeral nature of beauty, because the peach rots very fast. Then, by the same token, there would be flowers, and then there would be a skull, They would organize things so that you would read the painting, but the symbolists take all of that much farther, and they start bringing in elements of subterranean eroticism, buried unconscious desires. In some ways, they prefigure Dada and surrealism, in that they tap into concepts and ideas and spirituality, but are driven by impulse. And the interviewer, Mark Scott Zikri, I see them as an arrow right into your work, because your work puts beauty and sensitivity right alongside grotesquerie and death. You don't sugarcoat stuff. That's what surprises me a lot when I read reviews of my work. I read one criticism on Pan's Labyrinth in which someone said, Well, it's a very simple dichotomy. Fantasy is beautiful, real life is hard. And I thought, what movie did they watch? The fantasy in Pan's Labyrinth, except for the ending, is super grimy. The fairies are these little imps and they are dirty, naked and kind of evil looking. The phone is incredibly ambivalent, even menacing. 
I cannot think of the frog as a pleasant piece of fantasy, or, or much less so the pale man, and having to feed the mandrake with blood and the fetal implications of the mandrake. I mean, I tried to make the fantasy as gritty as reality because that's what it's supposed to be. When you seek beauty only within the world of perfection, you end up with illustrations of fairies dressed in pink tutus, sprinkling dust with cherubic babies and a flower garden. And then the images really, in my mind, don't have any weight, any gravity. But when you have seen something horrible, and you choose to create something beautiful, the work comes out with a hefty weight. I think that's why I like Rops, who was undoubtedly a guy who was tragic and fascinated by war, tragedy, destruction and sex. He creates something beautiful out of that. So what I can interpret from what Guillermo is saying is that the reality we exist in provides us with the building blocks we have to create our fantasy. If there is a lot of happiness and light in the life of an artist, they might make something very sweet. But if there is turmoil and suffering, then the fantasy they construct to help them and others to cope with that, to tell the story of their world, is cut out of those bricks, and it will be touched by that darkness and that ugliness. And some artists can, in turn, from that hideous pain, find a twisted beauty. This isn't one-to-one. -one. Some make dark fiction to escape a dull and toothless reality. Some bottle lightness to escape the dark. But thinking back on the stories of real weight, the ones that have really mattered to me, full of injustice and oppression and tragedy, and the dwindling measure of humanity left to oppose it, suffering greater defeats the harder they fight. They are nearly always woven from the dense threads of the author's experience when their mind comes into contact with an unsettling world. Visible only to those who know where to look. This is an ethos apparent in all of Del Toro's work, even Pacific Rim. The average moviegoers will just see a dumb, fun popcorn flick with that Jaeger film. But there is so much folded into the fabric that is worthy of note. He taps into the mindset of a certain kind of person. Usually lonely, often quite capable of being fascinated, even enraptured, by a twisted beauty to be able to empathize with the monster and reject the monstrous champions of the oppressive systems. These are stubborn and singular flowering weeds that grow up through the cracks, the anomaly which cannot be choked out entirely, the spirit of defiant, assertive, passionate creation, but always destined to be minor, a sliver, not a movement, never the dominant ideology, because by its nature it must be transgressive, to that end, it must be continually overlooked, and thus remain visible only to those who know where to look. Next week, Hellboy 2, The Golden Army. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out.